Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. One in three Minnesota fourth graders cannot read at a basic level, meaning they're not reading at grade level. If you want to know why, you can find some answers in a new investigative podcast from American Public Media called Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong. It explains so much about why kids in school are having a hard time learning how to read and why so many are below grade level and have been for a long time. It's the work of award-winning education reporter Emily Hanford and was produced by American Public Media. I'll be talking with Emily in just a few minutes. But first, I want to get you updated on the growing concerns around respiratory illnesses right now. They're showing up early and making lots of people sick, including many children. Some are calling it a triple-demic, referring to the spread of the flu, COVID-19 and RSV. Dr. Beth Thielen is joining us right now, joining us live. She's an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School and an infectious diseases physician with M Health Fairview. Dr. Thielen, good morning to you and thank you for your time. Good morning, Angela. Thanks for having me. So I know you work mostly in pediatrics and you have also spent some time recently working shifts in a hospital. Describe what you are seeing right now. Yeah, so I think what I've been seeing in the hospital probably mimics very well what people are experiencing in their own lives, which is that there is a lot of respiratory viral illness in the community right now. And some of the people with those illnesses are becoming quite ill. So in the children's hospital, we are seeing very high levels of, of uh, filled beds. So we're it's really challenging our capacity to take care of sick children right now. And that's really due to a mix of uh, illnesses. So sometimes it's the respiratory viruses themselves, um, particularly affecting those very young children. Um, definitely seeing a lot of uh, infections with multiple viruses, so RSV plus COVID. Mm. Um, and then another um, major il- illness is that um, sometimes the viral infections open the door to bacterial infections coming in. And so we're seeing a lot of uh, bacterial co-infections as well that are leading to these high levels of hospitalizations. Tell me more about the bacterial infection and what do those symptoms look like? Yeah, so this is a phenomenon that we've known about even pre-pandemic. So what's been observed is that oftentimes uh, individuals will start with a respiratory infection that maybe is a mild runny nose, a cough, and then maybe five, seven days later, they'll, uh, after a period of initially improving, they'll start to begin to get ill again and maybe have high fevers and and more significant illness. Um, And what we know is that there's a certain kind, several kinds of bacterial infections that are particularly prone to causing those uh, infections after a viral infection. And those are really dangerous when they end up in places like the bloodstream or the brain or the bones and joints. And so we're seeing a lot of those secondary bacterial infections right now. What do we need to know about the spread of the flu? Um, How are are the numbers we're seeing uh, for the influenza season uh, shaping up? Yeah. So just to to go back a few months, we really got hit early this season with respiratory syncytial virus or RSV. Mm -hmm. Um, That it looks like is starting to come down now. um, And we're starting to see numbers of flus really taking off. And right now we're about at least four to six weeks ahead of where we normally are in in terms of numbers for a a typical winter season. So the numbers are really shaping up to be to be quite high if they continue rising at the rate that they're on. And is part of this due to the fact that we're not masking nearly as much as we were earlier in the pandemic? 
I think that's a, a really significant part of it. Um, we, do, we do know that respiratory viruses are sped very similarly through um, secretions, so sneezing, coughing, um, touching surfaces, those sorts of things. And so the masking we were doing early on, we, we do think uh, can reduce the spread of flu and RSV and other respiratory viruses. And just this week, I believe that the CDC advised that we start wearing masks again in certain situations. Yeah, and I think that that is really, given the state of our healthcare system and how many people uh, I know in both my personal and professional lives who are really struggling with respiratory disease right now, I think that's a really solid uh, recommendation, a precaution that we can all take to keep each other healthy. Now, Minnesota is also seeing an increase in COVID-19 cases. Uh, Another version of a variant of uh, COVID uh, started showing up in in wastewater samples in the Twin Cities in late October. What do we need to know about uh, COVID numbers here? Yeah, so we're definitely seeing that in the new variants. And I think the really important thing from a healthcare standpoint is that some of the drugs that we could rely on uh, earlier in the year and and last season to protect our most vulnerable uh, community members from severe disease are no longer working with these new variants. And so I think it's it's really important... um, for, for people to take these other precautions like, um, you know, the wearing the masks, getting vaccinated. We certainly, I can't emphasize enough the importance of vaccination for protecting community members. Um, and we now have bivalent uh, vaccine boosters available for, for much of the population and ho- hopefully even in the young children in the near future. And uh, again, what, what can we be doing right now to prevent the spread and to protect ourselves and each other? Um, is it just because, you know, you mentioned like with, with the kids, in some cases, we're seeing uh, people with, with two of these illnesses at a time. Yeah, so I think really the approach is is to layer on protections. And I think uh, not just focusing on just one uh, method, but really um, multiple at the same time. So I think certainly masking is really important. Ideally, if people can wear, you know, well-fitting N95 or KN95s, those are best. But even surgical masks, I think, can reduce the risk of transmission to other people for people who are, are ill. So I think wear whatever mask, you the best mask you can and tolerate and have on. Um, I think vaccination is really important. So we have vaccines for for COVID, we have seasonal vaccines for influenza. And um, just a reminder that uh, to update those regular childhood vaccines for those um, bacterial pathogens like pneumococcus and Hib, which are causing some of those bacterial infections after viral infections that I mentioned earlier. Um, So so that that sort of uh, panel of activities for the individual, but also thinking, um, you know, cautiously about planning events, thinking about, you know, staying home if people are feeling symptomatic, because Mm -hmm. certainly a a milder illness in one person can really be a severe life-threatening infection in another person. And so I think it really falls on all of us to to exercise precautions of how to prevent, uh, even if we ourselves are not at risk for severe infection, thinking about the vulnerable people who might be around us and our friends and family that we want to protect as well. Right. Right. And, and that is something we can control. We can make decisions. Maybe maybe I won't go to that. I'm, I'm coughing and sneezing. I have a runny nose because uh, I'm not, not sure what it is. Maybe I'll just stay home. Exactly. And just because someone tests negative for COVID doesn't mean that they don't have one of these other respiratory viruses that could be um, really quite severe in a young child or an older adult. And so um, just thinking if you have symptoms, that's a pretty good indication that you have an infection and that that's a risk Mm -hmm. to spread to others. All right. Well, thank you again for your time. I know you're very busy. We've been talking with Dr. Beth Thielen, an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School and an infectious diseases doctor with M Health Fairview. Doctor, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Well, 
If you listen to the show regularly, you may know that education is something I care deeply about, and I'm sure many of you do as well. That's why I want you to really know about a, a new investigative podcast by American Public Media that's all about how children are taught to read in schools. I want you to listen to it because it explains so much about why so many children can't read and are really behind in their reading level. Nationally, one in three fourth graders cannot read at a basic level. That holds true in Minnesota as well. They're not reading at their grade level. Award-winning education reporter Emily Hanford spent years looking into how reading is taught nationally. And she discovered that the way that it's taught in many schools actually makes it harder for children to learn. And to give you a better sense of the issue, I want you to take a moment now to listen to the first minute of the first episode of the podcast called Sold a Story. Guide dogs lead very interesting lives. For 10 or 12 years, they are in charge of guiding a blind person. I got this recording from the U.S. Department of Education. They give a reading test every two years to a sample of kids. Most guide dogs are born at a kennel. This is a fourth grader who did well on the test, reading a passage about guide dogs. The dogs train in large groups for about three months. But most kids don't do well on this test. Dogs are... In fact, a third of fourth graders read so poorly, they sound more like this. Dogs read very interesting. This child gets through only a fraction of the passage and can't read several words that are key to understanding what's going on. Words like guide and blind. One in three kids in fourth grade reads like this. How did that happen? That is education reporter Emily Hanford and how the new podcast Sold a Story begins. Emily answers that question and what her investigation found is pretty shocking. Let's hear a bit more. Listen. Kids are not being taught how to read because for decades, teachers have been sold an idea about reading and how children learn to do it. And that idea is wrong. The people who have been selling this idea I don't have any reason to believe they thought it was wrong. I think they wanted what I think everyone wants. They wanted kids to learn how to read. They wanted kids to love reading. But they believed so deeply in their idea about how to do that, that they somehow ignored or explained away a whole lot of evidence that showed the idea was wrong. And they went on to make a lot of money. Reporter Emily Hanford is traveling the country right now to talk about the podcast and her research with parent groups and education groups. This morning, she's joining us live from Connecticut. Good morning, Emily. Hi, Angela. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I feel like we've been in conversation for days because I've been listening to all the episodes of the (laughs) podcast. Uh, Your voice has been uh, in my head. And I'm thrilled that you're able to spend the hour with us uh, so that we can give our listeners an opportunity to hear some of this extraordinary work you and your team have done. Now, first, though, I I want you to to describe the response from listeners to the podcast so far. What are people saying to you or maybe what are they saying more publicly? Um, I know the first (laughs) of the six episodes uh, came out in, in late October. 
Yeah, I'm hearing from a lot of people. The response has been um, very large. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm hearing from all kinds of people, which um, is what we wanted. I, I think one of the reasons that we created this podcast is we really wanted to reach a general audience. As you mentioned earlier, I have been reporting on this issue for years. We have done a number of other projects around reading. And that was really starting to make its way to teachers and parents. And we were really trying to reach the general public and help everyone understand that this issue affects you, even if you don't currently have kids or grandkids in schools, if you are not a struggling reader. This is a really important topic for all of us to give our attention to and to think about and to think about doing something about Mm-hmm. But I would say that, you know, the overwhelming amount of response continues to be from parents and teachers. And a big, you know, there's sort of two responses that I've been hearing all along, and I've been hearing it even more now. And one is, I know, I know, I've been hearing about this. You know, I've been trying to get people to pay attention to this issue for years. This has been going on for years, and people haven't been paying attention. Mm-hmm. And the other response is, oh, my goodness. I had no idea. And I'm hearing that from so many teachers, so many teachers who just didn't know what they really needed to know about how kids learn to read and what that means about what they need to teach. And, you know, teachers who are feeling really shocked by that, um, remorseful, guilty, sad, really sad. Yeah. Well, Emily, we're going to take calls from our listeners in the second half of our show. Uh, But first, I want to share more uh, of this uh, compelling podcast with everyone. I mean, I I really believe in just how um, compelling uh, audio storytelling is. And so this next clip really lays out what Emily's investigation is getting at and what parents are dealing with. Listen to this excerpt uh, of the podcast. It's called Sold a Story that tells you more about what has happened with teaching kids how to read. Okay, so we're recording. Okay, I'm Corinne Adams. I live in South Kingstown, Rhode Island. I have two kids, six and two, boy and a girl. Her son is the older one. His name is Charlie. When she sent him off to kindergarten in the fall of 2019, Corinne had no concerns. One of the reasons she and her husband had moved to South Kingstown is everyone told them the schools were great. She had no idea how her son's school was teaching reading. Who thinks about that? I don't know how to teach a child how to read, so I just assumed that the children I sent to school would come back to me literate, because that's what school does, right? At first, everything seemed fine. Charlie would come home with these little books, the same book every day for a week. And he'd practice that book and send it back, and that's what we did. There were directions for the parents about how to read these books with their children. It was like, read the book to the child first, and then eventually the child will have practiced it enough that they'll read it and it'll be great, you know? And he would listen to me read it, pay very close attention to what I was saying, repeat that, And if it was a new book, Mommy, you read it to me first. Charlie wasn't interested in trying to read books she hadn't already read to him. New books, like, freaked him out. He didn't want to do that. She was a little concerned maybe he was just memorizing the books. They were pretty simple stories with predictable patterns. Sentences like, I like to play with a train. I like to play with my dog. Charlie was able to read these books, but was he really reading? She wasn't sure. But the school said he was doing great. They were telling me he was doing fine. They were telling me he was on level. 
When Charlie did well on something in school, the teacher would send home a little note. And he would get them all the time for, like, great reading. He would get them in his little backpack, and I'd be like, oh, you're doing so great. And then, March of 2020, the pandemic. Suddenly, Corinne was in kindergarten, too, watching as Charlie and his classmates were being taught over Zoom. So we sit together, and I participate. You know, I help him make sure he can unmute himself and all that stuff. Corinne's a stay-at-home mom. She wasn't juggling online school with another job. So she was watching pretty closely. And the reading instructions seemed kind of odd to her. They gave us, like, these strategies to follow. These were things kids were supposed to do when they came to a word they didn't know. Strategies to figure out the word. They were things like, look at the picture, look at the first letter of the word, think of a word that makes sense. Corinne wanted to tell Charlie to sound out the word. But handouts coming from school were telling her that wasn't a good idea, that sounding out words should be a last resort. So I was like, okay, well, this is a new, different way, and I'm sure they understand what they're doing. Because I do remember sounding out. I do remember that activity. But Charlie and his classmates were being taught to use these other strategies. We're going to look at our book, Zelda and Ivy, The Runaways. This is a video Charlie's teacher had her students watch during Zoom school in first grade. It's not Charlie's teacher in the video, but it's a lesson from the curriculum the school district was using. I'm going to read a little bit of this story to you. And if I get stuck on a word, I want you to try to help me figure out what that word could be. The teacher reads the story. The kids can see the words on the screen. They're following along as she reads. And then the teacher comes to a word that she's covered up with a little yellow sticky note. Okay, so we're going to stop right here on this covered word. And the teacher says, what could this word be? Let's look at the picture. We're going to see if the picture helps us to figure out what that word would be. The kids can't see the word. It's covered with the sticky note. So there's no way they can sound it out. They're just trying to figure out what the word could be based on what's going on in the story. If we think about what's happening so far in the story, we know Zelda and Ivy's dad made cucumber sandwiches for lunch. And Zelda and Ivy didn't want to eat the sandwiches, so they ran away. And now they think their mom and dad will... Will what? Zelda and Ivy ran away, and now they think their mom and dad will... Scold them? Find them? Do you think that covered word could be the word miss? Ah, miss them. Could it be the word miss? Because now that they're gone, maybe their parents will miss them? The teacher asks the kids to think about whether miss could be the word, using the strategies they've been taught. Let's do our triple check and see. Does it make sense? Does it sound right? How about the last part of our triple check? Does it look right? Let's uncover the word and see if it looks right. The teacher lifts up the sticky note, and indeed, the word is miss. It looks right, too. Good job. Very good job. Go ahead and click on the next slide so you can practice this strategy on our next part of our story. This seemed weird to Corinne. Why have kids guess the word? Why not have them look at the word and try to actually read it? And I said to my son's teacher, I was like, this isn't how we learned how to read, like meaning me and her. And I just like kept like nagging at me, like in the back of my mind, like this isn't how we did it, right? Like this can't be right, right? 
It's possible Corinne would have just brushed all this off. Whatever, he'll figure it out. The school says he's doing fine. But she also had to give Charlie a reading assessment at home. Not something a parent would normally be asked to do, but this was COVID. And I wasn't allowed to read it to him first, and I couldn't help him in any way. I just, I could point to the words for him, and that was it. He had to read it. She gave him the test. They're sitting in their kitchen. Charlie's two-year-old sister is playing in the background. And Charlie has to read a book called How Things Move. How Things Move. This is that reading assessment. Corinne recorded it. Here's the sentence Charlie is trying to read. This toy moves when you push it. There's a picture in the book of a girl pushing a truck. You, it, you. Charlie is grasping for straws. He has no idea how to read most of the words in this book. Some of the words he is saying are not even on the page. Box. It was just like eye popping, and I went into my bedroom and cried. <laughs> she went into her bedroom and cried. Um, again, this is an excerpt from a six-part investigative podcast uh, called "Sold a Story." Uh, Emily Hanford, uh, the lead reporter on this. Emily, it, it's heart wrenching to, to hear this. And what you know, one of the many things that struck me is how that mother uh, you interviewed said. Uh, what I think most parents assume, that, that schools and teachers, uh, they are using the most effective methods to teach children how to read. They know what they're doing. They're, they're trained educators. And, and we can trust them um, that if our kids go to school and, and pay attention, they're going to learn how to read. But we know that's not happening for many children. Yeah. And it's one of the most difficult things, I think, for parents when they start to recognize that their kids are struggling because the schools are the experts. You mm-hmm. you want to trust the schools and the teachers. And I think I don't think that anyone is trying is trying not to teach kids to read. I do not think this is deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very difficult for a for a parent to then question it. And I got into this reporting because of that, really. I was interviewing parents all over the country, and they were talking about the fact that their kids were struggling, and they were having this similar experience that Corinne did, which is the school was saying he was doing fine. The school said it was okay, and then I brought it up, and I was saying, no, but I think there's something wrong. He really isn't reading very well. He's really struggling. He's starting not to like school. And the parents start to feel like they're living on another planet. Planet. It becomes very like, what is going on here? Am I crazy? Like, what is up? Mm-hmm. And there's this disconnect. And that's really what I was trying to explain, explore, and figure out how it happened. This disconnect between what many parents are seeing at home and what's going on in school. And when they bring it up and question it, they often get a lot of resistance from the school. Right. And the mother of that kindergartner, uh, little Charlie, um, she said, this wasn't how I I was taught to read. Uh, She learned how to sound out words. And uh, the example that she used there, you know, was the word miss and how the pictures Mm -hmm. in the story were supposed to teach the kids how to say miss. As I was listening to to that, I just wanted to like jump in there and like (laughs) say, okay, okay, Charlie, like look at this M, M -m 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 I, S, S, miss. So let's let's talk about, um, you know, the the podcast describes a way of teaching reading that's become very popular over the last decades. And it's been picked up by school districts around the country and by many school (coughs) districts here in Minnesota. So Emily, uh, describe this approach to us. What is happening in schools? 
Yeah, I do want to emphasize that what I'm talking about is sort of an approach, right? So mm-hmm. I'm not talking about a like necessary. There's there's so there's some survey data that show that the vast majority of elementary schools across the country describe the way they teach kids to read as balanced literacy. And that sounds really good. I think we all want balance in all things. I think we yeah. could use more balance sure. <laughs> in our world. So uh, that is a term that doesn't have a precise definition. But what I have found in my years of reporting is that there's sort of a foundational idea uh, that you can find within balanced literacy. And it is this idea that it w- when it comes to teaching kids how to read the words on the page – which is the thing that kids need to learn to do to become good readers, right? Little kids come into school and they know how to talk. Mm-hmm. They know the meaning of words. We know that some kids know the meaning of lots and lots of words and other kids don't. And this contributes to some of the inequities we eventually see in reading achievement, to tell you the truth. But there is this this thing. Most kids come into school and they don't know how to read the written words yet. And what you'll find in a lot of Uh, approaches, programs that define themselves as a balanced literacy is that they will teach these strategies that I was just talking about in the podcast. So you could sound out the word. That's one strategy you could use. But in fact, there are all these other strategies that might be easier for you. Because the truth is that sounding out written words in English is kind of difficult. Written English is actually one of the most difficult alphabetic languages to learn in the world. Mm -hmm. So I think these strategies became popular really because teachers weren't equipped with the knowledge of how to teach reading and how to teach written language as well as they need to be. Uh, A first-grade teacher actually needs to know quite a bit about written English to be able to teach it well to a little kid. A lot of uh, teachers haven't been equipped with this knowledge, and I think this idea that there are these other things they could teach kids to get the words just became very attractive. And what happens is that a lot of kids aren't being taught how to read the words, so it ends up with what you just heard, little Charlie. Some kids do put it together and figure it out, but it turns out a lot of kids don't. They need much more direct and explicit instruction in how to read those words, and they're not getting it in lots of schools, and they're being told they don't have to sound out the words. They can, but in many schools, they're not being enough in, given enough instruction in how to do it, how to sound out the words. So how did this uh, approach uh, gain so much traction, and why did so many teachers in schools embrace what we're seeing now, that this balanced literacy, and sort of getting away from, from phonics as being sort of the basis of everything? Yeah, well, I, I think it. what I said before, which is that they didn't get the knowledge they needed when they were prepared to be a teacher. So I think that's a foundational problem here, like what happens in teacher preparation programs. And we have a significant amount of evidence that teachers are not being taught what they need to know about reading and how it works and how to teach it to little kids. And then I think the other thing that I identify and investigate in the podcast is the fact that there are some very popular materials, so sort of brand name versions of balanced literacy that schools are spending a lot of money on that are being sold by some people who have become really um, sort of gurus of literacy, like teachers know these people by their first names. They're like rock education professors. You, you said they're, they're like, like rock stars. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they aren't the only ones selling this balanced literacy approach. There's lots of people, um, literacy experts, consultants, publishing companies that are broadly speaking, t- you know, selling the materials and the curriculum to teach so-called balanced literacy. But there are these three people, three authors who are alive now in a, a publishing company 
that has really become very well known. And you can go into schools all over the country and you will see uh, these people's books and their materials all over the curriculum, um, you know, person's office and in classrooms all over the place. And it's a company named Heinemann. It's a publishing company in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And a woman named Lucy Calkins, who's a professor at Teachers College Columbia, and a couple of other professors, one named Irene Fountas, who teaches at Leslie University in Massachusetts, and Gay Supinel, who's a retired professor at Ohio State. And they started selling this approach very effectively back in the 90s and um, have really had a huge influence on how schools teach reading across the United States and in other parts of the world, too. And, you know, there is some science, though. I mean, you know, what in in your experience and, and what you found, like, what does the research say about how children learn to, to read? Because we do know a lot more than, than we did even like 20 years ago. Absolutely. So people have been arguing about how to teach reading for a long time. I mean, really yes. hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was really because no one knew. And then there's been this just explosion in research and knowledge about reading. Um, since the 1960s, 70s, there was really an explosion of, of research. And it's really revealed a lot of very important things about just how our brains learn to read. And I think there's sort of one fundamental idea that people can go away with, and it's this. We are not born with brains that are meant to read. And that's because as human beings, we just invented written language kind of recently, right? So we've been walking around as human beings on this earth for a really long time, and we just did this written language thing a few thousand years ago. So our brains actually aren't ready to do it, uh, or they're not able to do it on their own. They, They are ready to do it. You can become a very, very good reader. But the sort of foundational idea in a lot of reading instruction is that learning to read is a lot like learning to talk, that if you immerse kids in a literate environment, that they will eventually figure it out. And it turns out that that is not true for probably really anyone. (laughs) It's a continuum here. Like some people are able to put it together without a lot of explicit instruction. And some people need a lot of explicit instruction. And then there's this big, wide middle. And the other big aha that I would like to emphasize to people that really surprised me in this reporting is that it's just more people than you might think. Reading is actually quite difficult for a lot of people including a lot of very, very intelligent people. Very smart people have a hard time learning how to read. And you asked me at the very beginning who I'm hearing from, and I told you a lot of parents and teachers, and there's another category I hear from a lot. And it's adults who kept this as kind of a secret for yes. a lot of their life. Yes, Learning yeah. to read was really, really hard for me. No one really taught me how to do it. It was very confusing. I'm still not very good at it, and I don't really want anyone mm. to know. And a lot of people are sort of, and they've used this term, coming out. <laughs> I've gotten several emails mm-hmm. like, this work has helped me have the the strength to come out and say, hey, this is me. I'm not alone. There are a lot of people like me. And a lot, a of, lot pe- of people struggle. A lot of people moved on, advanced, uh, finished elementary, middle, high school, graduated, and still really are not uh, efficient readers. And uh, you do have some compelling yeah. stories in the podcast. Uh, and let's take a phone call right now, Emily, in Plymouth. Uh, patiently waiting. We've got Susie on the phone. Good morning, Susie. What do you want to share with us? Well, hello, Angela. And Hi. hello, Emily. Um, I first of all wanted to say... Um, thank you to Emily for bringing this issue of poor literacy instruction to the national spotlight. And thank you for elevating the voices of parents. Uh, Angela, I wanted to say thank you for highlighting this issue on a more local level. We live 
in a top-rated district here in Minnesota. Um, our son was not identified as having a learning, learning disability by our school. We paid for that through a private evaluation. Um, and since then, our family has spent tens of thousands of dollars buying our way out of an illiteracy problem. Mm-hmm. And just my final statement is that it should not take financial privilege to learn to read. That's Susie in Plymouth. Thank you, Susie, for calling. Emily, you get into this in the podcast series. You talk about uh, families, families with money. Their kids weren't learning how to read either in school, but they were hiring tutors. And so that's how their kids learned how to read. Yeah, you know, I think a really important um, insight from all of this is that there are kids with learning disabilities, with reading disabilities, who have a particularly hard time, right? So they are really, they really depend on school to teach them how to read. But I want to stress to people that this is not just a problem affecting people with reading disabilities. People who have reading disabilities, I think of them as sort of the canaries in the coal mine, Mm -hmm. sort of showing us, hey, there's a problem. Because not as many kids would be struggling if kids were getting good core classroom instruction and being taught how to read. So what's happening is that there are some kids who are suffering more than others as a result of not being taught to read in school. And what is happening is that some kids are getting the instruction they need but they're not getting it at school. They're getting it because their parents are teaching them at home, which is what Corinne Adams, Charlie's mother, ended up doing. She thought, oh my goodness, what's happening? I will do some research and teach Charlie myself. That is happening in lots of homes. Or many parents don't have the time, uh, Mm -hmm. the bandwidth, to teach their own children how to read, so they're hiring other people to do it. They're paying $100 an hour. I was at an event last night from a parent who is a teacher talking about the fact that she had to hire a tutor for more than $100 an hour to teach her son how to read. So the really important thing here to understand is that when schools don't teach kids how to read, it has consequences, and it affects some kids more than others, and some kids get the help they need, and often that has to do with the kinds of resources you have. So this, at the end of the day, is an equity issue. Kids from poor backgrounds, kids from moderate income families often cannot get what they need. And they, those kids really suffer the most. And in one of the documentaries I do, I went to a juvenile detention facility where the kids are finally being taught to read. So many of the kids in juvenile detention, so many of the adults in prison cannot read. And the fact that they cannot read, I think, is part of how they got there. And so we really have to keep – this is why at the beginning I said this is for all of us to care mm-hmm. about. This is an equity issue in our society. Because the harm from – that one of the harms of, of not learning how to read and being a confident reader, it can lead to behavioral problems in class. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. So, you know, here, here's what's happening, and I, I think this is really important. Little kids go off to school when they're five years old and go to kindergarten. And really, this learning how to read is one of the first things they're expected to begin to learn how to do, as, lo- as well as, like, learn how to be in school and get along with other kids and all mm-hmm. that, right? So kids re- many kids realize right off the bat that they're having a hard time. And often it's a little secret that they keep from their parents even. You know, they're like, ah, there's this thing that I'm expected to learn and I, I'm not getting it. I, 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 I'm not able to put all this together. And um, it, it leads to deep questions in little five and six-year-olds. Is there something wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Self-esteem questions. And kids usually, you know, respond in sort of one of two broad ways. One is to sort of withdraw and like hope no one notices. And the other is to like act out. And, you know, when it's time for you to read in class, one good way to get out of that is to act up and say something and get kicked out of class and then you don't have to read. 
And that is happening all over the place. I also tell people, if you want to find the struggling readers in a school, go to the nurse's office because it's the kids who have a tummy ache when it's time for reading instruction. Mm. Uh, I think I'll just check out here. Oh, Emily, um, you have some amazing uh, statistics uh, throughout the podcast. In the first episode, uh, you talk about one in three fourth graders uh, cannot read at a basic level. That's across the board. What did you learn about racial disparities as we as you look at racial and, and, and income inequality that we know exists in America? It really is devastating. Uh, the the data from before the pandemic, okay, I, I like to focus on the por- before the pandemic because we know that things ha- are now much worse than right. they were. But we had a big problem before kids weren't in school for more than a year in many cases. So what we saw in 2019 before the pandemic is that more than eight in 10 black children in this country cannot read at a basic level. Now, that should Hold be on. just eight- like... Eight in 10, so like 80. More than. More than. 82%, and it's worse now. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's happened is that we've seen, really writ large, we've seen that ultimately like as a problem with the children and their families more than the reading instruction. And I think that has sort of pervaded the conversation about reading instruction in this country. So parents will go to school and say something's not right here. And they'll be told, well, you didn't read enough to your child at home. Read to her more. Help her find a book. It's it's your fault. And so in many cases, we're blaming the families and saying they didn't do enough without looking at the instruction itself. And I'm not saying that instruction is the only factor here. We know that uh, family resources, uh, parent educational background has a very big influence on reading achievement ultimately. But there is a very significant, important role for instruction. And there's a lot of research that shows that if you teach kids how to read, most kids will be able to learn to do it pretty well. All right. We're talking with Emily Hanford, a a senior correspondent and producer with American Public Media. Uh, She is a a longtime journalist and has been reporting on education for many years. Uh, She has a new podcast that just uh, came out, an investigative podcast called Sold a Story, which talks about the approaches to reading, how, how kids are being taught how to read in school and the problems that we're finding. Let's take more of your phone calls. Uh, in Minnetonka, we've got Stacy Klein. Stacy on the line. Hey, Stacy. Good morning. Hello. What did you want to share Thank with us? Thank you. Uh, I want to reiterate Susie's gratitude um, and thank you both for the platform that you've given uh, to this issue. It's very real. And uh, even being blessed to be in the most affluent school district in the state of Minnesota, uh, we have a child who is dyslexic, and uh, for years uh, we chose to trust the district uh, when they told us that um, even though his extremely slow uh, process or progress was adequate, um, it, it was not. Uh, he learned two new letters of the alphabet in one year, and we were told that that's appropriate. Our, our kids, uh, our son who's in middle school, our daughter who's at the high school in Minnetonka, both came home with leveled readers. I was trained as a parent volunteer to assess students using the Fountas and Pinal ladder of reading uh, in first grade in a baggy book program. Um, unfortunately, we had to file for due process with the district just to get appropriate evidence-based instruction uh, for our son. And it took a court order for that to happen. And I can tell you that um, 
you know, there are families out there, every family I talk to who has um, gone down this path, as Emily has stated, too, there's um, a level of cost there. There's an emotional cost to the student, to the family. Um, There's a financial cost. There's a cost to time and energy. And the uh, activities that these kids who are spending time in tutoring or sitting on the couch doubting themselves are not spending um, in sports or extracurriculars Mm. or with friends. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the district uh, appealed our uh, prevailing ruling, and um, after three years of a legal battle and um, several hundred thousands of dollars in legal debt that we now carry, uh, the district prevailed in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals and uh, argued successfully uh, to the judges and convinced them that the Fountas and Pinnell ladder of reading uh, was an appropriate, quote, phonological measurement of progress um, for my students. Okay, Stacey, I, I want to give entered- uh, Emily an, an opportunity to talk about this um, because, you know, I, I'm thinking about the, the sixth and final episode of the podcast, uh, Sold a Story, uh, Emily, begins with the voices of parents and grandparents at school board meetings across the country, all demanding to know why their young kids can't read uh, or their reading is way beneath grade level. There's definitely a lot of pushback happening right now, uh, as Stacy is describing, like taking the district to court. Yeah, you know, I got into this topic really through that. So the first documentary I made about this was about kids with dyslexia and why they're not getting the help they need in school. And what I was meeting are all these parents who were taking it to court (laughs) and spending a lot of money. And, um, you know, I sort of stepped back and was like, whoa, okay, so that's the tip of a very big iceberg. Um, And that was when it was really the the parents of kids uh, who are struggling to read who showed me that there was all this research. There's all this stuff known about how to teach reading, and they're getting a tremendous amount of resistance from schools. And the resistance, you know, schools are spending millions of dollars on defending themselves um, and defending the way that they teach reading. And the best explanation I can have for that is that those schools just don't don't themselves understand reading and how it works. And, and, ha- and, you know, I think writ large, a lot of people just haven't known what to do about this problem. So when a kid presents with a real reading disability, the schools don't broadly know what they need to know about how kids learn to read. So they don't, they really don't know how to help the struggling readers. Um, and that's just happening over and over and over again. I've just the stories that you've just heard uh, from parents this morning are stories that I've heard so many times from parents all over the country and in other parts of the world. All right. We're talking with the lead uh, reporter and producer on Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong, a new investigative podcast uh, taking more phone calls in St. Louis Park. David's on the phone. Hey, David, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. What's um, your this story? story? Goes back, yeah, this story goes back about 20 years ago when my daughter was in second grade. And just to give you a little background, we're one of those families who have three kids, and we read to them every night, you know, before bed. And, you know, since they were able to really, you know, sit up in their bed and listen to that. So second grade, and my girl's around, and my daughter's at a private school, and we started noticing that she just wasn't reading correctly. You know, she was you know, she would take turns reading. It just, just wasn't right. We went to the school and said, um, there's something wrong here. She's just not reading correctly. And the story comes back, as you noted before, well, she's reading at grade level. And the school that she was at, I believe it was called the whole language. 
Is that one of the reading methods out there? Yeah, that's, yeah. yep. I would say the balanced literacy approach that I referred to before sort of grew out of this whole language approach. Yeah, yeah. so back when they called it whole language. Okay, so, so they said, oh, no problem. She's reading fine. Well, that was second grade. Third grade rolls around and we got the fall conference. The teacher says, well, I want to talk to your mom and dad for a little bit. You know, told my daughter to go out in the hallway. And she basically said, you know, your daughter's not reading correctly. We almost killed her. <laughs> We've been telling them for a year she's not reading right, okay? And so, of course, then we went down the path you mentioned before. They, we had a private tutor after school and things like that and helped her. But it wasn't really until we went to um, Thanksgiving down to my aunt's house, who's a special ed teacher, and she gave her some sort of tidbits on how she would be teaching her kids how to read and things like that and more into the phonics type of reading. And she's done just fine. She you know, was a straight-A student in high school and everything else. So always a little slower reader, but you know, it's just the, you know, the fact that we were trying to tell the school there's something wrong, they weren't listening. And you know, in this private school, seem to be more set up if, you're, if you had trouble, they weren't really there to help you as much as if you were in a student that excelled. They're a lot better set up that way. Thank you, David, for sharing that. Uh, Emily, what did you want to share with what he described? Well, I, I did actually want to say that, um, you know, this is a problem that is pervasive in public and private schools, right? So sometimes parents think, well, the public schools aren't doing it right. I'll take my kid out and send them to a private school. And there are plenty of private schools that are following the same approach that isn't teaching kids how to read. And um, so parents have to sort of think about that. There are schools around the country that really specialize in teaching kids who have reading disabilities. And there are often long waiting lists to get into these schools. There might not be one close to you. I've talked to parents who have moved their entire family to other states so that mm-hmm. they can get their kid into one of these schools. And they will pay thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year to send their kids to these schools. So, um, but but uh, this is not a problem. This I this problem that kids are not being ta- many kids are not being taught to read in schools in this country is happening in public and private schools across the country. Emily, uh, before we leave, before our time is up, tell us again where we can find out more about the podcast, where we can listen to it, how we can find information about it. Well, thank you so much for highlighting it. I really appreciate it. It's Sold a Story. You can Google it and find our website, soldastory.org. You can look for it on your favorite podcast app. And um, I hope you'll listen. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And again, you're traveling the country talking to parent groups and education groups. Thank you for your um, your dedication and um, just the de- you know the work that your team has done over the, you know so many years to get to the bottom of this. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our guest, Emily Hanford, a senior correspondent and producer with American Public Media, lead producer for the new investigative podcast. It's called Sold a Story. APM is a division of American Public Media Group, which is the parent company of NPR. This conversation today was produced by Maya Beckstrom. We'll talk to you again, everybody, tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.